<laughs> All right, the book of Isaiah is, uh, is like a microcosm of the whole Bible. It's really interesting. The book of Isaiah uh, has 66 chapters. Guess how many books of the Bible there are? 66. And also, uh, in the Bible, you have 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. In Isaiah, you have two major sections. Uh, the first is uh, chapter 31 through 39, the chapters on law and you would say the government of Israel. And then chapter 27, excuse me, the last uh, chapter 40 through 66, last 27 chapters are on grace and salvation, about the coming uh, kingdom, the grace and salvation of the kingdom. So it's really uh, an amazing thing. It, uh, I don't know if that's an accident or, or what happened. But uh, it really is just like, it's, it's the structure of the book of Isaiah. It's just like the whole Bible, structure of our whole Bible. Uh, as you uh, can see, Isaiah is the author. His name is all over it. He's almost in every chapter. He names himself. God spoke to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. So clearly, the internal evidence is that this book was written by Isaiah, which is really important. And here's why. Because Isaiah is a book of prophecy, and there are hundreds of prophecies that came true both in the short run, uh, you know, like in the, in the maybe 100, 200 years after Isaiah, but then also 700 years later, prophecies that came true in the person of Christ. You have, you know, I saw different accounts depending on how you count them, but I mean, there's, you know, something like, uh, 60 to 100 prophecies about Christ in the book of Isaiah more than any other of the prophets. And so having come true, it's pretty awesome evidence of the supernatural nature, the inspiration of the book of Isaiah. So if you're more naturalistic in your view and you believe men just wrote this, like all the scholars, most of the scholars today, not all, but you could certainly say the more liberal, non-evangelistic scholars, uh, maybe at the Ivy League schools or elsewhere, uh, don't believe that, that it's God-inspired, that God wrote it or God uh, inspired it, then you've got to do something with all this prophecy that's been fulfilled. Probably the chapter we know the, the most about is Isaiah 53 because it is so clearly about the first coming of Christ he details what Christ would look like, everything, what he would teach, uh, the ministry that he would have, the way he would suffer, that he would die a vicarious death for other sins. He says he takes the sin of our, all of us on himself. It says that he's going to die in, a, uh, in, in the way of a criminal on the cross, but he's going to be buried in a rich man's tomb. He's going to be re all, resurrected. All these things just in one of the chapters of Isaiah. So if you don't believe that the Bible's inspired by God, you've got to do something with that. And so they have. They want you to believe, the critics, the liberal theologians, that Isaiah is some other, per some other Isaiah or some other person using the name of Isaiah who wrote the book after the facts. And all this came out of the Enlightenment in the 19th and 18th century when all these brilliant thinkers, you know, the, everyone up until that point, all theologians, all churches up until that point had said this is, uh, Isaiah wrote this, but when they started looking at it, 
they wanted it to be, uh, all these German theologians specifically in the 19th century wanted this to be more naturalistic. And there's no way to make it only naturalistic, not supernatural, if, unless it's written after the fact. And so they would tell you that Isaiah did not write Isaiah, and therefore they would tell you that somebody else wrote it after the events actually happened. One of the obvious, obvious holes in that that got shot in their theory was in 1947, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And all the critics, it, even they had to admit that the Dead Sea Scrolls go back to 150 to 200 BC. So obviously Isaiah had to be written before that. So they at least had to take uh, that into account that Isaiah, uh, surely the predictions about Christ, uh, you know, were the writings of the actual Isaiah or were at least, very least, written before Christ came. Um, all they did then was just go back and say, that's not what I, Isaiah 53 says. Isaiah 53 is talking about something else. So, I mean, you can't beat them. You know, if they've made up their minds, that they have the presupposition that this is not God's word, then there's not much you can do. But for us, it's very important that Isaiah wrote it for those reasons. Um, and so Isaiah... Uh, he was uh, a prophet that God sent to the city of Jerusalem in the 8th century B.C. He's going to say here in today's uh, chapter 1 of today's lesson that uh, he prophesied, God called him to prophesy under four kings that he lists there, but most of his ministry was spent under King Ahaz and King Hezekiah. Um, after Hezekiah, his son Manasseh actually probably executed Isaiah because he was a bad guy. Hezekiah was a good king, but his son was not. And uh, Isaiah spoke against him, and so he had him sawn in two. <laughs> and uh, I say that just to let you know how awesome Isaiah is because the, the work of a prophet, the office of prophet is not for the faint of heart. It is an was an and is an incredible job. Just to tell you something about how hard their job is. Um, imagine uh, Hezekiah. Excuse me. Imagine Ezekiel the prophet. He was told to shave all the hair off of his head and body, and then carry around his baggage all everywhere he went to signify when everybody would see him. They'd see this bald guy without a beard. And they go, what's up with that? And he'd have these big bags he'd be carrying, all of which would signify that Israel was going to go into captivity. They were going to, they were going to run for cover, uh, according to the prophecy. Uh, Isaiah, in Isaiah 20, he's actually told to get the attention of the people. He says, I want you to walk around Jerusalem naked and barefoot for three years. Preaching a message. Anybody sign up for that? Anybody? I didn't think so. Jeremiah the prophet had to wear a heavy yoke. Have you ever seen one of those oxen yokes? They, he put one of those on, and he had to carry that big heavy thing around all the time when he was preaching. And to signify that Israel was going into, going to be carried off into captivity, captivity into slavery. And so... The job of a prophet was rough. 
So this guy is an incredibly faithful man to God's calling, knowing all the hardship that he had to go through. And worst of all, worst of all, God told him beforehand, we'll see it next week in Isaiah 6, God told him beforehand, and I want you to preach a message that they won't listen to and nobody will respond. I want you to preach this message in the streets of Jerusalem and in the uh, uh, palace of the king and everywhere you can for 40 years to four different kings. But you need to know they're not going to listen. Great job, huh? If your success ratio is based on people that listen and respond, it's going to be a miserable 40 years. And so therefore, obviously, his success was measured on being faithful to God's calling to step out in faith and do what God uh, told him to do. And he did that. Amazing. Isaiah. Isaiah was the Hebrew prophet, uh, again, who predicted the coming, the first coming of Christ. There's plenty of other prophecies throughout the Old Testament about the second coming the Messiah would come and set up the kingdom. That's really what Israel was focused on because that's the good news. And Isaiah's going to talk about that too. We'll see it in today's lesson. He's really going to go back and forth between a message of judgment. God's going to bring justice. Uh, Israel's involved in idolatry and uh, all kinds of uh, criminal activities. And uh, they were going to get justice for it. Judgment was coming. They need to be ready. And you better repent or it's coming, but he also had a positive message that he mixed in. It was kind of an alternating message, the judgment, and then he would talk about, okay, but in the end, God is going to restore his people and going to set up the kingdom of God, and there will be peace, and everything will be perfect in that day. So he had uh, both a negative and a positive message that he preached to the people of Israel, and of course, still corresponds to us today, still has meaning for us today. So Isaiah was uh, one of the few prophets that really hit on the prophecies about the first coming of Christ, and he predicted that the Christ, the Messiah, would come to salvage mankind from sin, redeem us from our sin. He predicted the virgin birth. He predicted uh, what tribe the Messiah would come from, uh, the family of David, the incarnation that would be God in the flesh, uh, the Son of God who was humble and despised. You know, that, that doesn't sound right. The Son of God comes, but he's humble and despised, but he will predict that. Uh, he's going to predict that he'll, be, he'll suffer beatings and humiliation and eventually be killed. Uh, he predicted the vicarious atonement that he would die for us in our place in order to atone for sins, uh, that he would die a criminal's death, would be buried in a rich man's tomb, that he would be resurrected and then exalted into heaven. Isaiah predicted all these things about the first coming of Christ. So he's clearly, in our view, and he's, I think, regarded as the greatest prophet his writings are the longest. He's got 66 chapters longer than any of the other prophets. And he's first in your Bible. He's the first prophet listed in your Bible for that reason. And as I said before, and you can find this in Hebrews 11.37, we're told, and 
uh, Jewish tradition tells us as, as well uh, that he was actually, he actually died a martyr's death. The old, good old king, Manasseh, such a wonderful guy, stuck him in a hollow log and then sawed it in two. Uh, and so, yeah, tough job being a prophet. And so we ought to really uh, look up to these guys and, and look at their message in a very uh, uh, hard way and try to apply it to ourselves because God uh, really took the, these guys that he loved and put them out there to give this message to us. Uh, there's four main themes in all these prophecies that he's going to give. Of course, the first one is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is coming. The second one is all the warnings of judgment. Uh, and so with those warnings of judgment, he's also going to have alternating restoration of Israel. So the good news as well. In the end, it's going to end well. He's also going to give uh, prophecies of the nations, what about all the different nations in the world that Israel knew at that day? He's going to tell you everything that's going to happen to them. And believe it or not, it all did. Everything he said actually happened to all those nations there in the Middle, Middle East, as he uh, said. Uh, then he's going to talk about the day of the Lord, that great, that, that final judgment of God, the end of the world, God's wrath, and then the setting up of the kingdom, the kingdom of God that will be ruled by the Messiah. So he is uh, very interesting, very appropriate for us, for the church as a whole. And in chapter 1, we see uh, he identifies himself that this is the first one, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So he was a prophet sent to Judah and Jerusalem. Judah is that little area around the city of Jerusalem. Now keep in mind that uh, when we think of Israel, we think of what's there right now. In this time period, 740 B.C., the kingdom of Israel, after Solomon died, uh, he, his son was a creep, and the people rebelled against him, and the kingdom split between Jeroboam uh, and Rehoboam. So Solomon's son Rehoboam took the kingdom of Judah, and, and Jeroboam took the northern kingdom of Israel. So the kingdom was split from that time on. And so the prophets that you see in the Old Testament were typically sent to one kingdom or the other. And Isaiah was sent to the southern kingdom of Judah, specifically to Jerusalem. And as I said before, I think he was probably part of the royal family, actually, because he had, all through these stories, he has ready access. He can go right into the palace and talk to the king. Not many people could do that. A lot of the other prophets, they couldn't get an audience, or the king had to go out and get them uh, when things were going bad, or they were preaching in the city all the time. We find Isaiah quite often uh, in meetings with the kings that, that are mentioned here. And so he was a special guy uh, in Jerusalem, and God gave him this vision of judgment upon Judah. And so verse, beginning in verse 2 through the rest of chapter 1 is like a court case. God is basically saying, let me give you the state of the union of Israel and then you judge what should be done. Let me tell you how bad things are there and then you tell me if I shouldn't step in and intervene and shake this deal up. 
And obviously the answer is going to be, yeah, Lord, you need to do something. These guys are way off the track. So he begins in verse 2, listen, O heavens and hear, Lord. He's calling all of creation to be the jury. God's the judge, and he's the prosecutor, and he's going to lay the case out there. And then all heaven and earth, all creation, you tell me what God should do. Listen, O heavens and earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I had reared up and brought up, but they had revolted against me. He sees Israel as the children of God. God brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, brought them into the land, protected them, fed them in the wilderness, gave them water, defeated their enemies, ran the Canaanites out of there, gave them the promised land, set them up as a nation, made them a special people, his mediators on earth did everything for them, made a covenant with them. Here's, the, here's my Ten Commandments. That's my moral law, my moral ethical law. Keep this, especially the first one. I'm going to let you slide a little bit on the others, but you got to keep the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. If you do that, everything's cool. You're going to have peace and prosperity, things go well. But they didn't. How long did it take them when they, after they left Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, did it take them to break that one? Just a couple of months, they were over there building that golden calf for an orgy. <laughs> right? So they broke the covenant, and that's what he's saying. They had revolted. Now, it's been, this has been going on. That was about 1400 B.C. with Moses. Now we're talking 740. So almost 700 years they've been doing this. God has been patient, is the point. So he says, they revolted against me. Look, this is crazy. An ox knows its master. A donkey knows its master's manger, where to go. But Israel does not know its master. My people do not understand. So how stubborn are they? more stubborn than an ox or a mule. They are, they have reached heights of stubbornness beyond what any animal has done. So shame on this. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity. So not only do they not go to the Lord and worship Him, they also sin in every way, just that general concept of iniquity. Offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord. That first commandment, they've broken it. Once you break that first one, all the other ones fall immediately. They're like bowling pins. Sons who act corruptly, they've abandoned the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away. And he asked the rhetorical questions. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in rebellion? Now, Assyria was the main nation, warrior nation, empire of that day. They were the threat. They were on their northern boundary, and they were always coming in and messing with them. And they had managed, Judah managed usually to pay them off to keep them out, but they had conquered some cities and stolen a bunch of stuff and laid waste a bunch of the land and killed a bunch of uh, Jewish people. So they were a threat, and they were feared. And what God is going to say here, I sent them. 
I used this evil people, the Assyrians, to discipline you, to wake you up. And how much of a beating do you have to take before I get your attention? This is his point. And that's what he's saying here. How long the rebellion continue? If your whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint, your health is bad from the sole of the foot even to the head, if there's nothing sound in it, if you've got bruises and welts and raw wounds, if I send people down there to just beat the heck out of you, will that wake you up? Will that get your attention? And he's saying, not these people. They're that tough. They're that stubborn. The second image, verse 7, your land is desolate. What if I send them down there to just wreak havoc on the land and burn you out and take all the crops? Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers devouring them in the presence. They're eating all your food. Desolation remains as these strangers, the Assyrians, come in. The daughter of Zion is left. In other words, Israel is left like a shelter in a vineyard. In other words, an abandoned hut in a desolate field is all you got left. Somebody, the Syrians have come in and taken all your stuff. God said, I did that. And it didn't work. You still stubbornly refuse to worship me. And so verse 9 says, okay, look. If I let them, they'll come in and wipe you out completely. And it's only because I'm holding them back that they don't. So you need to respond before I let them come. Now this is about 740. Guess what? 722, he does just that. He lets them come. And Assyria completely wiped out Judah. Not Judah, Israel. Left Judah but he completely wiped out Israel, the northern kingdom, in 722. He's not messing around. And Isaiah predicted it. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we'd be like Sodom and we'd be like Gomorrah. What does that mean? They're destroyed. They're destroyed completely. Now, verse 10, he's going to give you two alternative ways. 10 through 15 is the wrong way, the negative way. If you want a continual beating, if you want to continue to have the Assyrians come through here and take all your stuff, if you want continual discipline, do it this way. That's 10 through 15. So let's look what he says, because this is important. This is a lot like things are today, verse 10 through 15. And how, how is that generally? Religious hypocrisy. Anybody else ever men mentioned that? Something about the hypocrites in the church? I can't remember. <laughs> That's what this is. It's not as if they weren't religious. He's not saying they're not religious. They're very, very religious. But not in accordance with the truth. They have no heart relationship with the one true God. They just have a bunch of religious stuff. Why would people do that? They like to control their circumstances. They want to say, oh, we can go do this religious stuff and still continue to get away with all this other stuff. <laughs> all we got to do is uh, go in there and maybe, you know, 
do a couple of confession prayers, do a little uh, makeup work, get some money. And you know, if you just attend church, you get some stars. And if you do some of that cool ritual, you know, get down on your knees and maybe say some uh, canned prayers that you don't even mean, you'll get some check marks on that. Right? So he says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's, he's likening them to evil Sodom. Verse 11, he says, again, rhetorical question. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? What do I care about it? There's no heart behind it. There's no sincerity behind it. They mean nothing. So they had priests and they're doing animal sacrifices uh, constantly for, to atone for sin. And God's saying it doesn't mean anything. You're not atoning for anything. You're not, there's no heart behind it. You don't mean it. It's hypocrisy. He said, I've had enough of your burnt offerings. You're wasting your time. In the fat of fed cattle, they brought all these animals in, you know, for sacrifices. And he said, you're wasting your time. I'm not watching. I don't care. It means nothing. You come in, verse 12, to church every Sunday or Saturday in their case. Just trampling the courts is all you're doing. Just because you're there doesn't mean anything. Verse 13, bring your worthless offerings no longer. When's the last time you heard a sermon in your church that said, we refuse to let you give money. <laughs> we will not pass the plate, and if you try to give it, we will not take it. You never? Nobody? That's what God is saying here. When you give money, God says, I want you to do it from your heart, sincerely. It means something to you. You're not trying to buy your way out of the sin you committed Saturday night. But they were. So he calls them worthless offerings. They burned incense there at the table, at the uh, temple, and it was supposed to be an image. If they saw the smoke go up and smelled it, it was an image of the prayers of the priest going up to God. And he's saying, you're wasting your time doing that because I'm not listening. I'm not going for that. It's a bunch of nonsense. All your festivals, your special days, your new moon, your Sabbath, I, I don't care about any of that. Your appointed feast means nothing. Verse 15, this is a shocker. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Say all the prayers you want. God says to the people of that day, the sinners of that day, I won't listen. Even though you multiply your prayers. A lot of people think, you know, and there's nothing wrong with this, but, you know, if we can just get 150 or just pick a number, a thousand people to pray about this specific issue, God will have to listen. And he's saying, no. If your heart's not in it, you don't mean it. I'm not listening to nothing. Because your hands are covered with blood. In other words, you are a crook. You are involved in violent behavior. Evil practices. So here's the second option. 1015 was, you know what, we said two alternative ways. Here's the, here's the way you want to go. Verse 16. Clean up your act. Come back to the party. 
Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice. He's going to go on and on. Basically what he's saying is you need to have a right relationship with the living God. That's what this is about. A right relationship with the living God. If you do have a heart relationship with the living God, your life will be changed and you will do these good deeds and be obedient to God's word because you want to. <coughs> when you don't want to, it's really hard to keep rules and regulations. Have you noticed that? I've seen most of you on the toll road. I can guarantee you. <laughs> You're speeding. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. I don't know. I know I am. And why? Because we don't agree with that law. That's for those people that can't drive well. We drive well. We can go 80. <laughs> so he says, come now. Verse 18. I love this. Let's reason together. Be reasonable. Think this through. If you come to me in humility and develop that right relationship with God, what will happen? Though your sins are scarlet, red, they will be as white as snow. God will forgive you. He'll wash you clean. Though they're like crimson, they will be like white wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. God will bless you. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so this, these, are your two, these are your two options, and these are the consequences of each. They're in verse 20. Again, verse 21, the rebellion of mankind and the consequences of the rebellion. They're in verse 21 through 31. You have a series of contrasts between what God intended and what he got. And I won't read it all because we're in a hurry, but... Just to wrap it up, it's like this. God intended faithfulness from us to be faithful, and he got harlotry, unfaithful. He intended righteousness. He got criminal behavior. He wanted silver. He got dross. He wanted pure wine. He got tasteless, diluted wine. He wanted a good leadership. He got rebels. Uh, he wanted defenders for, of the helpless. And what did he get? Takers of bribes. All that there in, in that section 21 through 31. Uh, and then in chapter 2, remember I said you have these alternating messages. Before he lets you get too down about what a bad sinner you are, he's going to remind you, it's okay, it's okay though, there's hope. In the end, God's going to set up the kingdom and everything's going to be right. He's going to turn this ship that's going the wrong direction he's going to write it in the kingdom and so the beginning in chapter 2 verse 1 through 4 is all about the kingdom of god and the glory and the peace that's in it the peace that's in it but then in verse uh, 6 he's going to go back to the mess that's the world today thou hast abandoned thy people the house of jacob god's abandoned them because they 
are filled with influences of evil people, people from the east. That would be the Assyrians, Mesopotamians. They've got soothsayers, fortune tellers. They've got, like the Philistines, uh, they've made, they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Uh, they are into human trafficking. I mean, all these horrible things. It's the reality of what's going on when Isaiah is preaching this. Verse 8, idolatry. The worst thing you can do. The worship of the work of their own hands. They made gods of their own choosing. They made gods of their own choosing. But he says down in verse 12, God will have a day of reckoning. This is not going to go on forever. God knows what's happening, and God cares, and there will be a day of reckoning. Uh, and so he goes on with that uh, consistent line of thought all the way through chapter 3 about the rebellion of Israel and all the sins that they've committed. Uh, <coughs> And so pick it up in chapter 4, again, alternating, chapter 4, he's going to go back to the kingdom of God. Uh, in the end times, chapter 4, verse 2, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be pride, be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. So all the remnant in the end times. God will set up in his kingdom and it will be glorious and peaceful and it will be like God intended the creation to be. Verse 4, righteousness. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, again Israel, God will wash them clean and forgive them as we will all believers at that time. <coughs> And then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion, that's an uh, image of Israel, and over her assemblies, that you may know Israel, uh, excuse me, Jerusalem is built on about four <coughs> mountains. And the, the uh, city of David was, original city of David was on Mount Zion. The temple's on Mount Moriah. Uh, so as you go there, if you remember standing on the uh, Mount of Olives looking down in there, uh, Mount Zion's right there on your left, and Mount Moriah's right there on your right. And that's what he's talking about. The Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, the brightness of a flaming fort. His glory will be in the city. God will be there in their midst. He will be with them. So theologians call this eschatology. In Greek, the word eschaton is the end. And so this is so Isaiah's eschatology. In the end times, there's hope. God's not going to give up. He's going to continue to work with the human race. And eventually he will restore us, redeem his people, and set up the kingdom. And it will be a kingdom of hope and peace and glory. And then in chapter 5, if you'll turn to chapter 5, he goes back to the judgment. And this is a beautiful image that he's going to paint of Israel as a vineyard. The vineyard of the Lord. 
God has brought them out of slavery. And he has planted Israel in the promised land. A good land. What did Moses say? A land flowing with milk and honey. Productive land. And when Moses spoke to them right before they came into the land, he said, you're not going to believe what a good deal this is. You know, usually if you're a farmer, you've got to clear land, pull out stumps, remove stones. You've got to cultivate it. You've got to put in fertilizer. You've got to make sure there's water there. If there's not, you've got to you know, bring the water to it. You've got to do all this incredible hard work. Moses said, that's already been done. God's bringing you into this land and he's going to dispossess the Canaanites who have already cultivated the land and built cities and houses that God is going to give you. So God brought them in, did everything for them, planted them there, did everything they need, gave them good land, took care of them. And the image he's using here in chapter 5 is of a vineyard. This, this, uh, this is kind of a riddle. It's very much like if you've ever studied the life of David when he committed the sin with Bathsheba and he covered it up, didn't want anybody to know it, acted like everything's cool. David walked around for a year and said, no, no, that's not true. That, that never happened. Everything's good. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, that was just a coincidence that my son was born in six months. Freak <laughs> pregnancy, you know, early. Um, and Uriah died. I mean, that was just, you know, happens in war. I don't know why they took him up to that wall and everybody ran back and he got shot full of arrows. But it just happened. Not my fault. And so what happened? God sent Nathan the prophet and told a cool story with the intent of making David his own judge. And at the end of the story, David would convict himself. It's a story about an evil man that did something evil, and Nathan said, what do you think ought to happen? And David said, you ought to make that guy pay up, and then he ought to be punished. And Nathan said, you're the man. God's doing the same thing here with Israel, the whole nation. Look at it. Let me see now. A song for my beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. So Isaiah is singing, his beloved is God, the vineyard is Israel. My, my well-beloved, God had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around. He cultivated, removed all the stones, planted it with the choicest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it so they could watch over it and guard it and protect it from predators and thieves. He even went so far as to put a wine press in there and a wine vat so they could collect the grapes. And what do you, what do you reasonably expect? What would you reasonably expect if you did that? That it would produce grapes. Look what happens though. He expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And so now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. You be the judge. 
What more, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done? I did it all. I took care of them. I was faithful to my part of the covenant. Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do. I will remove its hedge. I'll, quit, I'll stop protecting it. I'll tear down the wall around it. And I'll let the animals come in and trample it. And I will let it be laid to waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no more. There'll be a drought. And in case you're thinking, well, how do you know that that's Israel? You may be unfairly charging them. Well, read verse 7. <laughs> For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. They're the ones I'm talking about, if you didn't get the imagery. This is all on them. And the men of Judah are the delightful plant that God planted in the land. And he looked for justice, but he got bloodshed, violence, criminal activity. He looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So God is going to pronounce in verse 8 through the rest of the chapter, six woes, <coughs> six woes upon them. Now, here's a tip. Woe is a bad thing. <laughs> as soon as you hear that word woe you need to back up <laughs> whoa <laughs> to those who add house to house and join field of many greedy land grabbers fortunately there's no real estate people here so it doesn't apply here <laughs> And I love the image. These people steal so much land and cheat so many people. They end up being the only ones with land and they're, they're totally lonely living there alone because they run all the... Verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning they may pursue strong drink, debauchery, who live only for their own pleasure, the banquets that they have, they, have, have big parties, he, he says, the music, blah, blah, blah. And he goes on about the pride that's in their eyes. They care only about themselves. Uh, verse 18, the falsehood, the false religion. All the evil behavior in verse 20. The proud in verse 21. Uh, the crooked in verse 23. Judges who take bribes. Uh, etc., etc., and then, of course, the consequences, the rest, verse 25, 25, on the count, this account, the anger of the Lord. God sees it all, knows it all, and I got to put up with it forever. Think how patient He's been. That's one thing about God, and I think that, you know, we, we take that for a weakness or something, that we can just keep doing what we want to do, that God is so patient and long-suffering, but he will respond. He will intervene, is what Isaiah is saying. saying. And of course, as I said, Isaiah will predict that in 722, the Assyrians will come in and destroy Israel. And even though Assyria is the main threat, he'll also predict, but Assyria will never take Jerusalem, 
but Babylon will destroy Jerusalem. And they did in 586 B.C. Just a taste of the prophecies that Isaiah gave that we'll be seeing week in and week out. And don't miss next week because it's, it's an awesome chapter. Isaiah gets taken up to heaven next week. That will blow your mind. It blows mine every time I read it. I can't even believe it. And uh, it's a great story. So let me conclude with this. If this vineyard stands for Israel, what about today? Does this vineyard have anything to do with the church today, would you say? What should God, or what does God expect from the church? What do you think? Social programs? Social injustice? The prosperity gospel? What's your religious ritual and activity? Going to church because you feel like you're obligated? Is that it? No. God requires the same thing, which is that fruitful relationship with him. Change lives that bear the fruit of the Spirit of God. God has given us his Spirit to move us, to convict us, to help us, to teach us, to lead us, to guide us, and we push him away. And God is watching. He has the right to expect that we allow his spirit change our lives and for us to bear good fruit for him, just as he expected Israel. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word. And I Thank you, Lord, that we can so apply it to ourselves. I pray we'll all be convicted and leave here with the determination to bear fruit for you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.